I'm Ashton Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from the Middle East. Today, the so-called World Court again puts US-EU-UK armed Israel on trial for another genocide-linked case. Tens of thousands, mostly women and children, have been killed by NATO weapons in Gaza, while Russia and China repeatedly vote at the UN Security Council for a ceasefire. Egypt is now wary of Israeli ethnic cleansing of more than a million Palestinians at the Rafah crossing. It's opposed in public even by Joe Biden and his Western European proxies, whose bombs have now attacked Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Lebanon and Palestine. Professor Avi Schleim was given the Lifetime Achievement Award by the British Academy, author of the new book, Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew. He's Emeritus Professor of International Relations at Oxford University, considered one of Israel's new historians. He joins me now from Oxford. Thank you so much, Professor Schleim, for uh, coming on the show. So, uh, well... Very you, good to be with you. You've said that the industrial-scale slaughter may have taken Israel to the verge of committing genocide. Why the verge uh, on what evidence you've so far seen in recent days? Well, this was, I made this comment quite some time ago uh, when there was some doubt. But today I have no hesitation in saying that what Israel is doing in Gaza amounts to genocide. Uh, genocide is defined by the um, Prevention of Genocide Convention is the attempt, intentional attempt <laughs> to destroy in whole or in part an ethnic group. And this is precisely what Israel uh, is doing. And for some time, Israel has been pursuing ethnic cleansing on the West Bank, and now they want to do the ethnic cleansing of Gaza as well. And the forcible displacement of civilians is a war crime. So there can be no doubt about this fact that Israel has been committing war crimes by telling civilians to move against their will. And um, there are, are 2.3 million people in Gaza. Israel has already forced 1. million of them to move south, not once. But first, Israel told the civilians to move from south to the center, then from the center to the south, then further and further south. And now there are most of the civilians, about a million and a half, are concentrated uh, in Rafah on the border for uh, Egypt. So ethnic cleansing is beyond dispute. Um, uh, genocide, some people may dispute, but a leading Israeli expert in Holocaust study has said that this is a textbook case, textbook case of genocide. And you don't have to listen to the experts or to me. Look at the ruling of the International Court of Justice, which said that South Africa has made a plausible case of genocide. Yeah, I want to get on to that. I want to return to Israel in a second, but then if it is, then obviously the last Holocaust was involving Germany. Co-conspirator cases then? I mean, no one is acting as uh, the uh, Genocide Convention mandates. Does that mean and open the way for Britain, Sunak and, uh, and Biden in the United States and Ursula von der Leyen as co-conspirators, given they are pouring the weaponry without which the genocide could not take place? 
Uh, I believe that uh, Britain and other European countries who are supplying Israel with weapons are complicit in Israel's war crimes. Uh, as for America, I would like to go further and say that America is not just complicit in Israeli war crimes and in genocide, but America is the enabler of Israeli uh, genocide. And I say this for two reasons. One is that the international community um, a while ago wanted to order a complete comprehensive ceasefire. And there was a resolution to that effect in the Security Council. 13 members voted for the resolution. Britain abstained and the United States used the veto and, um, and um, uh, vetoed this resolution. So we could have had a ceasefire, but for America who prevented um, the ceasefire. Uh, and secondly, uh, America continues to supply weapons and munitions to Israel. And America could threaten to withhold weapons and munitions, and Israel would have no choice but to stop the fighting. So America is doubly uh, guilty of participation, active participation in the Israeli genocide in um, um, Gaza, and it is probably for this reason that Joe Biden has earned himself a new nickname, which is uh, Genocide Joe. Well, as you uh, know, they are uh, quite open about the fact in the United States and Stoltenberg of NATO that this will improve the job situation in, uh, in a United States increasingly scarred by disparities of uh, power and uh, wealth. Are there actually comparisons between the Nazi war economy and the uh, massive pumping of billions of tax dollars into the United States economy in terms of manufacturing artillery shells with which to uh, mass murder children in the Middle East? Uh, it's best not to make any comparisons between Nazi Germany and Israel. It's best to look at Israel's record and America's record it's bad enough, so we don't need to draw any comparisons, and we don't need to exaggerate the scale of the Israeli destruction and carnage uh, in the Gaza Strip. As for the American war economy, it's always been the case that the weapons manufacturers who are located in the south uh, of the United States, in Republican areas, love Israel because uh, America gives Israel $3.8 billion uh, in military aid a year. So this means that American taxpayers' money goes to Israel as a grant and comes back as a profit to the American military-industrial complex. That's number one. Number two, because Israel is armed with the state-of-the-art equipment, um, the Arab states want to redress the balance or catch up to some extent and therefore buy American weapons. So um, somebody makes a profit out of war and it's the warlords, it's the uh, military industrial complex in America 
which has always supported wars everywhere for this reason. They supported the war in Afghanistan and they supported the invasion of um, Iraq in 2003. Iraq, where, of course, you were born. The reason I mentioned the Nazis is because genocide at the world court is so redolent of the Nazi experience, of, of course. I mean, Rwanda of, was one uh, prior occasion, but, of, of course, it's the Holocaust that casts the shadow uh, when one starts talking about genocide. It's 81 years since the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. Um, a tenth of those um, who've been killed in Gaza were, were killed, of course. The use of the word resistance... In, uh, in the way uh, media talks about it in Britain, where you live, how do you see the debate about what is justified as resistance? Um, for some reason, your Prime Minister Sunak uh, continues to say Israel has the right of self-defense, which, of course, it doesn't, given it's an occupying power. Do you think they understand the historical parallels? Um, I promise it's the last uh, Nazi comparison question. Do they understand the historical parallels with the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising? Uh, they most probably do not understand the parallels, uh, but nor do they understand international law, which is quite clear on the subject. Both Sunak and Starmer repeat parrot-like what Biden says. They never move one millimeter from the American uh, uh, position, and they keep repeating that Israel has the right to defend itself, but it doesn't, because under international law, uh, you have the right to defend yourself if you are attacked by a state, but Hamas is not a state. Secondly, um, uh, if the attack comes from an area that you occupy, then you don't have the right to uh, self-defense. To put it simply, you don't have the right to self-defense against the people that you oppress. Um, moreover, it's Hamas, it's the Palestinians in Gaza who have the right to resist uh, the occupation, including armed uh, resistance. So international law is quite clear that Israel doesn't have the right to self-defense in this case. What's the state of freedom in your country? Because you're an eminent uh, scholar at Oxford University. I've talked to other Oxford professors on this program, actually, who uh, uh, talk about the uh, scale of debate that's now permitted in, in Britain. What is your understanding of the uh, freedom of speech in Britain and in Western Europe, given you mentioned Starmer globally, people won't know who he is, but he's the person who was promoted by Jeremy Corbyn, the uh, then leader of the opposition Labour Party, and who says that things, things like what you've been telling me in this interview are anti-Semitic. Israel has mounted a global campaign to delegitimize the supporters of BDS, boycott divestment sanctions, which is a global grassroots campaign to end the occupation. Um, and this is a non-violent global um, uh, civil society campaign. It's non-violent, I stress that. And all the main demands of BDS 
uh, enshrined in international law, the right of return of the 1948 uh, re refugees, the right of Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel to, uh, uh, equal, to equality, uh, and um, an end of occupation, that's the most important demand. All these are enshrined in international law, but Israel and its many friends around the world uh, have conduct, uh, are conducting a campaign against critics of Israel, and they've weaponized anti-Semitism. And in Britain, the, re, uh, the government has adopted the International Holocaust Memorial Association definition of anti-Semitism, and it's a non-definition. It's completely vacuous. Uh, and the definition itself is useless. It doesn't define anything. But then there are a series of 11 examples of may what may uh, constitute anti-Semitism. And seven of the 11 examples relate to Israel. The aim of this um, definition is not to protect Jews against anti-Semitism, but protect Israel against legitimate criticisms of the occupation. So anti-Semitism has been weaponized in Europe, in Germany, in America, and in the United Kingdom. And the government in this country has clamped down on pro-Palestinian protests. Professor Avi Shaim, I'll stop you there. More from the author of Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Emeritus Professor of International Relations at Oxford University, Professor Avi Schleim, author of Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew. Professor Schleim, we uh, said in part one we were talking about this uh, conflation of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism uh, in effect. Clearly, those countries that express solidarity with the Palestinians are suffering. Your birthplace, Baghdad, was bombed in the past few uh, days, weeked by British and American uh, bombers. Uh, Syria, of course, has been bombed. Yemen has been bombed. It's even more serious uh, for um, countries that express solidarity than for uh, scholars, dare I say it. Any examples that you personally have had that you've witnessed uh, a lack of freedom and you're not being able to speak on these uh, issues? Or are you given free reign in the uh, British media to uh, tell us about your views as regards what we're witnessing as regards the Gaza genocide? Um, I have been um, a professor of international relations at Oxford for the last 36 years, and no one at my university has ever tried to restrict my freedom of expression, and I still enjoy, as I've always enjoyed, complete freedom to express my opinions as I'm doing to you in this interview now. But the general picture in the country is not so sanguine. Not, um, the general picture is that the British government is extremely repressive uh, and it keeps passing legislation in order to restrict freedom of expression on Israel and on the Palestinian uh, issue. And the government keeps giving the police more powers to clamp down on pro-Palestinian protests. The government um, 
there was a major, major pro-Palestinian protest in London a few weeks ago. Um, I went with my wife and my daughter. There were something like 800,000 demonstrators. I didn't see any hate, certainly no violence. There was a very good spirit uh, of uh, friendly spirit of solidarity with the Palestinians. But then Home Secretary Zoella Brotherman said that this was a hate march and she wanted the police to stop the march. The police, to their credit, refused to. So we have an extremely repressive government, which is an enemy of civil rights and which is a blind supporter of Israel, totally uncritical uh, supporter of Israel. And that is the situation here today. I haven't, uh, I cannot complain that my freedom has been restricted, but I've also had one encounter which is perhaps symptomatic of the growing intolerance of, for supporters of Palestine in this country. I was invited to give a lecture by Liverpool Hope University on the subject of my memoirs. Um, and the title was Zionism and the Jews of Iraq, a personal perspective, pretty obscure and narrow topic. And yet um, Jews in Liverpool complained to the university authorities that this would be unsafe. And it raised, my talk would raise uh, problems of safety. And the university didn't ask me to cancel the lecture, but they asked me to postpone it. And I replied right away. I said, okay, I won't come now. Uh, and I will never come to your university because this is not an issue of safety. It's an issue of academic freedom. So academic freedom in Britain is being eroded all the time for critics of Israel and for supporters of uh, Palestinian rights. And the best example I can give you of this trend in Britain is the decline and fall of Jeremy Corbyn, the uh, previous um, um, leader of the Labour Party, who was framed, who was accused of anti-Semitism, who was an anti-racist um, campaigner all his life, including opposing anti-Semitism. There wasn't any evidence against him. Absolutely. He's, he's actually been, he's been on this program and arguably uh, he started firing people uh, that were close to him on those fake uh, trumped-up uh, anti-Semitism charges, it has to be said. On Israel again, one of the arguable founding myths was that uh, it was a safe place for Jews. So do you think actually, given Israel is now arguably the most dangerous place in the world for Jews, do you think that the anti-Semites are really Netanyahu and those who enable his government in that they conflate being Jewish with being Israeli. Uh, I do think that, and Netanyahu is a very good example of this combination because many of his friends are anti-Semites uh, like Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary, like the previous government in Poland, the previous government in um, uh, Brazil. Uh, these were anti-Semites, but they're pro-Israel. 
and therefore Netanyahu doesn't care about anyone who is anti-Semitic as long as they're pro-Israeli. And this reminds me of something that um, Theodor Herzl, the visionary of the Jewish state, wrote in, my, in his diary at the end of the 19th century. He said, the anti-Semites will become our strongest supporters. And we are seeing this phenomenon uh, today uh, that um, uh, Israel uh, got mixed up with very nasty company. And this is a slightly different point. Israel supplies arms um, and cyber um, equipment and um, eavesdropping equipment on phones to a large range of countries around the world, including some of the most repressive regimes. So Israel plays a global role in supplying weapons and spyware to a large range of um, fascist countries. You uh, write about your uh, background in Baghdad in your uh, latest book. What does it make you feel knowing your government in Britain is bombing Iraq again? Um, I'm absolutely horrified by British policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And this is just one example, a contemporary example, but the whole of British policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is does, it's complete nonsense. It's complete rubbish. It doesn't make any sense because Britain says that the two parties should negotiate directly a resolution of the conflict uh, between them. But there haven't been any peace talks for 10 years. Israel, the present government, refuses to have any peace talks um, with the Palestinians. And to say the two parties should get together and resolve their own differences is like putting a lion and a rabbit in a cage and telling them to um, sort out their differences. The two-state solution, you have changed a little now and recognize that actually only a one-state solution is possible. What do you feel when people completely uh, ignore the idea of a one-state solution and continue to, uh, as Joe Biden does, as uh, NATO nation leaders continue to do, uh, what is wrong with them going on and on about this two-state solution? Uh, I used to support the two-state solution, which would have given a measure of justice to the Palestinians. And since 1967, there's been the broadest possible international consensus between a two-state, uh, behind the idea of a two-state solution. Um, uh, it has become fashionable to say that the two-state solution is dead. It is indeed dead because Israel killed it. Israel killed it by building settlements and expanding settlements on the West Bank and by annexing East Jerusalem and by building the so-called separation wall on the West Bank. Uh, separation wall is called by Arabs the apartheid wall. So Israel eliminated the possibility of a viable Palestinian state. All that is left to the Palestinians on the West Bank is enclave 
surrounded by Israeli um, settlements and military bases. So I say my starting point now is that the two-state solution is dead and Israel has killed it. I'll go further and say the two-state solution was never born. Um, uh, it was never born because no Israeli government since 1967 has ever offered uh, a Palestinian state on terms that would be acceptable to the most moderate Palestinian leader, first of all. And secondly, no American government has ever pushed Israel into a two-state uh, solution. So this is just a convenient phrase for people like Biden, Starmer, uh, van der Leyden, um, and they keep uh, banging on about a two-state solution. But the reality is that you can't have a two-state solution, and that's why I have changed my views, and now I support uh, the only democratic solution to this conflict, which is one state from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea with equal rights, equal rights for all its citizens, regardless of nationality, of ethnicity, or uh, religion. Yeah, this I think, the only way I think your uh, police forces over there don't seem to realize that the from the river to the sea means for uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And just finally, uh, you mentioned the apartheid wall. Nelson Mandela's strategy was, of course, violence. And uh, the Great March of Return, the peaceful march, Great March of Return, resulted in tens of thousands killed by US, UK, EU armed uh, weapons at that um, border apartheid wall. What, what would you do if you were a Palestinian uh, teenager uh, right now in Gaza? Uh, would, you, uh, would you go with Mandela or would you go with Gandhi? I would go with Mandela um, and I would put my trust in civil society because I have no confidence that the Western governments would change their position on Israel. Uh, but uh, uh, there is a gap, there is a disconnect between Western governments and their publics. The publics are increasingly uh, pro-Palestinian. The demonstrations around the Arab world and the Islamic world and the rest of the world in support of the Palestinians. So public opinion is shifting very, very dramatically now because of the genocide in Gaza against Israel and in favor of the Palestinians. Um, and therefore, I would, um, um, uh, I think that the Palestinians, their only hope or their best hope is that public opinion will continue to change and the International Criminal Court will take action, will pursue its investigation of war crimes in the occupied territories and that the International Court of Justice um, will eventually issue an opinion which would hold Israel to be guilty of uh, genocide. Professor Avi Schleim, thank you. Thank you. That's it for the show. Our continued condolences to those surviving the killing in Gaza, Jerusalem, Lebanon, Iraq, Yemen, and Syria. We'll be back with a brand new episode on Saturday. Until then, keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. And head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com, to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday.